Okay, so uh, Lamentations 4 is just kind of more of the same, all right? Like, if you've been here a while, maybe, some, maybe this is your first Sunday and you have no idea what we've been through, but um, Lamentations is a book of five poems. Um, they, they each stand on their own. They're not like, it's not like building a, like a story or, or anything, but it's basically five reflections of lament, of sadness, over one thing that happened, and it was a big thing. Um, it, it was the Babylonian exile. So if you know your Old Testament history, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but it was a big deal. A lot of books of the Bible kind of were written during this period of time where God's people were in rebellion against him, were continuously uh, refusing to repent for, for decades, and God continued to send them prophets to warn them. Uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, particularly a little bit, Ezekiel was in there as well. Um, and you had these prophets that were saying, hey, come on back, come to the Lord, turn back, and they just wouldn't do it. And so God sent a, an army from Babylon to come into Jerusalem to overtake it, to destroy it, destroy the city, and then to um, haul people away into exile. And so it's a, it's a brutal thing. It was, ha- it, it was an awful situation. Um, we, we can re- you can read all about it in, in Old Testament books um, like Second um, Kings, Second um, Chronicles, um, Daniel was, was written during that period of time. So a lot of books deal with this. But what we have here is five poems of lament, five poems written by Jeremiah expressing sorrow over what happened. So most of the poems kind of sound similar. They deal with similar things. And chapter four is, is a lot like that. We're going to see more destruction, more sadness, more lamentation, right? But this passage has a different twist than the others. It's each, each chapter kind of has its unique perspective on what's going on. And this is really a way for uh, Jeremiah to kind of process what's happened as he's lived through a really traumatic thing. So, so there's, a, there's a specific thing angle that we're looking at today, um, and it's going to be primarily verses 12 through 16. Uh, but I don't want to skip over everything else, even though that's what we're going to hone in on. Uh, the, the other parts of this poem, I think, should be discussed at least briefly. So we're going to do a very quick flyover of chapter, of verse rather, 1 through 11, and then again of uh, verse 17 through 22. Just kind of look at the broad strokes of this poem, and, and we're going to look at those first, just kind of get the, the big picture. And it's probably not going to surprise you because most of what he says, he's already said in some of the other poems. Um, but he repeats them again. And then we're going to go back to 12 through 16 and really look at his assessment of what's going on. So uh, let's start in verse 1 through 11. We'll just read it. And, it. and here's what it says. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they're regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer their breasts, they, they nurse their young. But the, daughters of, or the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. I don't exactly know what that means, but interesting. I've never met an ostrich in the wilderness, so maybe they're mean. 
Um, The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. Uh, Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were uh, brought up in purple, purple being the color of royalty and, and wealth in that society, embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom. So Sodom and Gomorrah, famous story from the book of Genesis where God uh, punishes the city, Sodom. And uh, notice what it says. This, this punishment of Jerusalem is worse than that. And here's why. It says, which was overthrown in a moment and no hung, hands were wrung for her. Meaning that Sodom's destruction happened really quickly. Jerusalem's destruction has been slow and painful. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now, their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the street. Their skin has shriveled on the bones. It's become less dry wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger. So, yeah, this is, it's brutal, right? Who wasted away, pierced by lack of fruit from the field. So he's like, it was actually better for the people who were killed like by the swords than the people who were not killed and now they're dying too, but they're dying from hunger, wasting away. The hands of <coughs> compassionate women, this is, this is rough. The hands of, this is going to be our text for the child dedication. No, just kidding. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. Uh, they've become their food. That was, I don't know. I don't know where that came from, sorry. During the destruction of my, the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled, kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. All right, so again, if you've been around for the last few weeks, this is kind of more of the same. It's just really heartbreaking, sorrowful, bad situation. Really, really bad. Um, What he's lamenting here, just in very broad strokes, is the destruction of the city, right? This is the whole point of the book. He's lamenting the destruction of this city that he loves, of the people that were within it. And, And so this is just more of the same on that. Right? We don't really need to spend a ton of time unpacking that to understand it. He's, he's just walking us through what happened and how horrible it is. Th- then you get down to verse 17. Let's skip down there for just a moment here. 17 through 22. This is kind of the second broad thing he does. He says, Our eyes failed ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that, we were, so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered for our end has come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits. The Lord's anointed is a reference to the king, Um, Jehoiakim was the king during this point in time. And uh, so he was hauled away. He was captured and taken to Babylon. And it says, of whom we said, uh, so speaking of the king, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Then it says, rejoice and be glad, O daughter Edom, you who dwell in the land of us, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter Zion, is, com- is accomplished. 
he will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, Edom is a reference to the Gentile nations. He will punish and he will uncover your sins. Okay. So again, this is now a lamentation about the, essentially the strength of the enemy, the power of Babylon. And he's lamenting the fact that Babylon came in and they had no chance. It was like an eagle chasing down prey, right? They're just, there's no chance. They had such an advantage. They had so much strength. Um, And so he's lamenting this. Now, there is a glimmer of hope at the end of this because he does say uh, that the exile is complete and God's gonna, he's not gonna continue to punish his people beyond this point. Um, He's gonna let this be and, and he's gonna do something with it. So there's a little bit of hope in that. But what's interesting about this passage, because most of it's not super distinct from the first couple chapters at least. Chapter 3 is a bit different and unique uh, in the book in that it's three times as long as the rest of the poems. And it's the only poem that actually has any real hope in it. But this one, again, not a ton of hope, a little bit, right? A glimmer here and there. But what he, where he goes in the middle of this poem is really interesting, If we look at verse 12 through 16, we actually get to see a real assessment of the situation. And we know from chapters 1 and 2 that the reason this happened was because of the sin of the people, right? We said at the outset of this that sin leads to suffering. And we also said that not all suffering can be directly correlated to our personal sin, right? Because you have Job, he's an example in the scriptures. You have Paul, you have Jesus, of course, who suffered and wasn't a sinner, right? So not all of our suffering is, be, is directly caused by our sin, but some of our suffering is and can be. And this, in this case, it is. It's the sin of the people that led them to this suffering. Uh, but, but we get to go even deeper now into the issue as we look at verse 12 through 16. So let's flip over there. Let's just look at these four or five verses. Here's what it says. It says, The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any inhabitant of the world, that a foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. So he starts with this. The kings of earth which includes Jehoiakim, which includes the king in in Israel. But all the kings, it says, did not believe, and neither did anybody else who lives on earth, they did not believe that a foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. So here's the deal. There's, There's an arrogance in the people's mind, particularly in the king. The king of Israel was too arrogant to believe that this could happen. Even though God sent prophet after prophet to tell him that it would, and we know when we read 2 Kings, the, the account of the kings there, Jehoiakim was not a good king. He was a bad king. He was an evil king. He didn't do what was right before the Lord. And, and so and we, that's so common in the kings. You read, a, you know, you'll get one or two decent ones in the mix, but most of them are just a train wreck. And Jehoiakim was a train wreck. He, he was an arrogant jerk who didn't understand that the Lord was going to c- come in here and deal with them. And he just kind of sat there and went, ah, it's fine, guys. Nothing can get into Jerusalem. We're doing fine. And so God humbles the proud, right? We see the pride of the kings. Not just the king of Israel, but the kings of the earth. 
All the kings were kind of like, oh, Jerusalem's a big deal. I don't think that anything's going to happen to it. And then look at verse 13. This is huge. This is, this is going to be the center text for us. Okay, the center verse that we're going to talk about. This, this referring to the Babylonians coming into the city to destroy it, this was for or because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They, prophets and priests, wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests and no favor to the elders. All right, so what's Jeremiah's assessment of the situation? Why did this happen? We know generally it was for the sins of people who were not ready, willing to commit, uh, to be committed to repentance. But we get even deeper here and we see that it was actually largely the sins of the prophets and the iniquities of the priests that led to this. And, and specifically, Jeremiah is speaking here, obviously in poetic form. I don't, I'm not sure how literal this is or how figurative this is. I'm not sure because we weren't there. We didn't, we didn't live back then. But he says that these prophets and priests were shedding the blood of the righteous in the cities. That's really wild to think. If this is literally speaking of what they were doing, if they were killing people, I mean, maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But, but the, figurative, the, the real message here is that they were abusing and harming and destroying the people that they were entrusted to lead. And so this is a unique twist on the situation from the other poems. Jeremiah doesn't really talk much in other, play, in other parts of this book about this issue. But fundamentally, this is a failure of human leadership in Jerusalem. The king failed. The prophets failed. The priests failed, and they were responsible to lead the people to God. So there are three offices. Those three offices are, are common throughout the scriptures, kings, prophets, and priests, and they all had a different function. The king's job primarily was to represent the authority of God to the people, right? So he was the embodiment of, of God's authority to the people. That was the Old Testament king's role. The, the, the king of Israel was meant to show the people that God is actually the king of kings, but we submit to his authority by submitting to the authority of the king. That's, that's how it was working in those days. That's the point of it, right? And so he, that's the role that the kings played. They, they were representing God's authority to the people. And so when they went amok and ran, ran you know, way off the rails the people didn't have a clear understanding of, of who God is. The, the prophets also represented God to the people, but in a different way. Um, they weren't speaking, uh, they weren't like the embodiment of authority, but they were the mouthpiece of God for the people. They were the ones who were speaking the truths of God 
God would speak to them and tell them, here's what you got to say. And that's why you have Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who are a few of the good prophets, and there weren't Weren't a, there were a lot of bad prophets too, uh, not true prophets. We saw that actually last week uh, referenced in chapter 3 um, where there was deception and lies being spread by the prophets. But you had some good ones, mostly bad ones, but their job was to speak on behalf of God to the people. Then the third, the third uh, role or, or office in the, in the early uh, period in the Old Testament period, rather, was the priest. And the priest did something different altogether. Instead of representing God to the people, the priest represented the people to God. So it was the, it was the reverse. And here's what his job was. It was from people from the tribe of Levi, that particular tribe of the Old Testament, Israel. And their job was to say, here are all the sins of the people. I'm going to take care of this by sacrificing these animals on their behalf. That was their job. So each position had, a, had something to point people to. They had a mediator in the priests. They had a, a, a spokesperson for God in the prophets. And they had an authority in the kings. And here you have, in, in Jeremiah's assessment of all of this, an absolute failure on all three of those levels that all of them did not do what they were called to do. And, and, and so this is why this happened. The failure of human leaders. And that's frustrating, right? right? Like we, we, could feel, like we could feel the frustration of that because why should all the people in this city have to suffer for the sins of some of the people? Well, that's because those people who are sinning were representatives of everybody else. That was their role. And so here's the thing. Um, We still see this today. We see it all the way to today that the failure of human leadership leads to suffering for people. Now, not, this isn't universally always true, but it's generally true that where the leaders go, the people go. I mean, that's, that's a true statement. I think most of us would agree with that. There are exceptions to that, right? I mean, you have Jeremiah as an exception to that. He didn't follow along with the, with the crowd. He, he stayed faithful to God. And yet he is writing as a guy who survived out of a horrible situation. And guess what? Jeremiah suffered with everybody else, even though he was not one of the bad prophets, Ezekiel was also alive during this period of time and overlapped during this. And he also suffered with the prophets. So so here's the thing. We we have to recognize that human leadership matters. It has a role to play. But when it goes awry, people suffer. People, People are harmed probably not to the same degree that we're talking about here, right? This is a unique situation. This is not a normative situation. This is a unique deal for Israel at this point in time. But the principle is still there. The principle being that when human leaders get off the rails, there's, there's actually suffering that comes along with that. So I want to speak to that issue because I think that's the, that's the primary center of this book, of this chapter. 
It's like, what do we do with this? What do we do with these priests and prophets and their king who were totally off, off base and were living recklessly and were, were completely away from what they were meant to be? What, what do we do with this? So let me give you some things. And we're going to take a little buggy ride through the Bible today, okay? So normally we kind of stick to the text, and, but today we're going to take a little buggy ride because I think there's, there's some things that we need to see um, broadly. But here's where we'll start. <clears throat> okay. We all need to get our expectations together, pull our expectations together. So everyone who's in a, in a position of leadership, everyone will disappoint you. That includes me. That includes everybody. Human leaders will fail you. Human leaders are sinners. Human leaders will not be what they should be all the time. There's one exception to this, and you're at church, and so you know the answer. It's Jesus, right? That's the exception. Jesus will actually never disappoint you. Ah, maybe in your sinfulness he'll disappoint you, but he's not going to disappoint you ultimately. He'll never fail you, and he'll always lead you ultimately to where he wants you to be. That's, that's where we have to keep our eyes, you guys. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus. Because if, if our hope is, is placed on some human being to be perfect for us, who's not Jesus, we're going to become disillusioned and busted up when that person ultimately fails us. We, we, we need to realize that it's Jesus who is you know, the, the, the center of everything. He's the one that, that will never fail to lead us perfectly. And that's really what the scriptures teach, right? The, the whole Bible is about Jesus and, and, how, and, and how he deals with this. So, so we're seeing an, a, a massive human leadership failure in Lamentations that led to, at least contributed to, a, a dispersion, and exile, people suffering, people starving to death. Um, all these horrible things that we've just seen happening happened because the leaders, the prophets, the priests, the king failed. So where do we find our hope in this? Well, flip over to Ezekiel 34 with me. And, and I don't think this is that big of a leap because Ezekiel was writing in a post-exile period. So the exiles happened, and Jer uh, Ezekiel lived as a, as a contemporary of Jeremiah. They lived at the same time, at least overlapped some. And Ezekiel was a prophet before the, the Babylonians came in, and he was a prophet after the Babylonians took them all away. And so he's writing in that context, in the exact same context that Lamentations is in. And uh, Ezekiel is a very long book. A pretty long book, not quite as long as Isaiah, but still very long. And towards the end, in verse in chapter thirty-four, we we get a glimpse of where this is going to head. Okay, so let's start in verse one. It says the word of the Lord came to me, and here's what it said: "Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel." Shepherds of Israel is, uh, is a phrase that refers to the leaders, 
Okay, so the priests, the prophets, the kings, they're all, that, all three of those offices are rolled into this shepherds. That's what they're referred to. That's, that's the analogy God uses of them. So when, we, when you hear shepherds of Israel, don't think the people who are actually raising sheep in a field somewhere, think these are the leaders he's talking to. So he says, God says to Ezekiel, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. That scattering is a reference, I believe, to the exile. Jerusalem's gone. It's history. It's just a pile of ruins. The people are scattered all over the place. Why were they scattered? Ezekiel says because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. That's a, again, this is, a, this is an analogy, right? So he's speaking about being basically prey for the Babylonians to kill. It says, God says, my sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains on every high hill My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts. Since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves, They've not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against the shepherds. That's not a good place to be. You don't want God to be against you. And he says, and I will require my sheep at their hand and I will put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue the sheep from their mouth that they may not be food for them. So God is saying, I'm going to step into this situation the shepherds of Israel, the prophets, the priests, the kings, they were doing what? They were, Ezekiel says, feeding themselves, not feeding the sheep. In other words, they were living out of a selfishness, a self-centeredness, a desire for themselves to, be, to gain and everyone else to lose. And God says, that's not going to continue. I'm going to save my sheep from your hands. Now listen to this. Verse 11 gets really really clear. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself. So don't miss the emphasis here. God is saying three times in that, I, I, myself. Any questions about that? Who's he talking about? (laughs) He's emphasizing something. He's not going to use anyone else. This is going to be him. God steps into this. God says, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep, 
that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out of the people, out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pastures they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Verse 16, catch this. This is my favorite part. He says, I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. He's going to bring justice upon the human leaders that failed. But he is going to care for the people. So everyone will disappoint you, but Jesus won't. He's going to step in. He's going to take care of us. He's going to find us. He's going to bring us home. He's going to heal our wounds. He, he's going to feed us on good pasture, right? This is, this is how God steps in to the brokenness of the world. And here's the thing. We see this all the time. We see, the, we see the train wreck of human failures. It seems like, especially in the church, it happens all the time. I think every week there's another megachurch pastor that crashes and burns. And I'm not saying that's anti, I'm not anti-megachurch, whatever. God does what he wants to do. But there are pastor after pastor after pastor that are failing, calling it quits, being fired. Why? We, we got to wrestle with that, right? And I'm going to get to why, I think, in a bit here. But the truth is that our eyes should not be focused on the failures. We need to be focused on our Savior. You know, somebody once said that the, the church would be great if it wasn't for all the Christians. It's true, right, in a sense. Because we're the problem. We're all sinners. Spurgeon said at some point that, you know, if you found a perfect church, it would stop being perfect the minute you walked in the door. So here's the thing, right? We, we all recognize the failures of human leaders. The church has failed leaders. The, the world around us has failed leaders. But we have a Savior who will not fail us, who will continue to pursue us and keep his people safe. And that's good news. And when we get over to the New Testament, we actually see Jesus here specifically as the fulfillment of these words in Ezekiel. Hundreds of years later, Jesus came into the world and he speaks of himself profoundly here. You're, you may be familiar with these words. Uh, we're going to start in verse 11 through 18. And here's what it says. Jesus is speaking. He says, I am the good shepherd. So you see the analogy here is keeping up, right? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What were the shepherds of Israel doing? Feeding themselves. What does the good shepherd do? Lays down his life. You see the contrast? The, the shepherds of Israel were trying to keep themselves good, healthy, rich, happy. And Jesus says, I'm a good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd 
who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Now that's a dig at the Pharisees. And he's basically saying, Jesus is basically equating the same thing Ezekiel was saying of the Old Testament shepherds of Israel. Jesus is saying, still happening. These are just hired hands. They're not really for you. They're going to run the second there's trouble. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. See how often he's saying that? That's the emphasis, that Jesus came into the world to be the shepherd that we needed, which was a shepherd who would sacrifice himself for our good and our lives and our salvation. He says in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. So he's speaking to the, to the Jewish people, but he's saying, hey, there's, you know there's sheep outside of this, this, this pen here, right? There's, there's other sheep that aren't in this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So Jesus is saying, hey, the Jews and the Gentiles, we're all going to get into the same fold here. We're all together under me. I'm the shepherd. Everybody's in it together. There's one shepherd. There's one flock. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. Look at that again. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. There's, there's his reference to the resurrection. He's not going to stay dead. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. There it is again. Of my own accord, I have authority to lay it down. There it is again. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So, so you see right here, Jesus is the good shepherd. The good shepherd distinctly doesn't serve himself. He serves his sheep to the point of dying for them. And so the father brings Jesus to, to this mission, to this purpose, to fulfill the words of Ezekiel 34 for us to be our shepherd that seeks us out, finds us, binds our wounds, heals us, restores us to what we were meant to be. I don't have the word, these words up on the screen here, so, but, but look at just verse 19 and 20. If you don't have a Bible out, I'll read it. It says this. This is just crazy to me. It's not really the, the direction I'm going with this, but I want to read it for you because this is fascinating. It says, there was a division again among the Jews because of these words. So they're hearing Jesus talk about himself as the good shepherd is going to lay down his life for the sheep. And there's a division among the people going, I don't know about this. This is weird. And many of them said, look at this. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Man, that's crazy, isn't it? But others said that, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? He had just opened the eyes of the blind in chapter 9. So there's, they're looking back at that and going, well, yeah, he's talking crazy, but he did this. Like, how can we? The hardness of heart is amazing. And that's why we've got to have a Savior that opens our eyes to see. Okay, so here's the thing. This shows us something very obvious, very clear. It's not complicated. It shows us that Jesus is the, the shepherd, the leader, the, the only person that we 
truly have to look to and we truly have to lean into for all of our hope. I, I think this is, this is so much of the problem is where we, when we idolize human leadership, we're always going to get burned every time. When we idolize people in authority, we're going to get burned because that person will disappoint us. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But now here's the thing. This is interesting as we continue to move forward here. We might be tempted to think, okay, we need Jesus. And I guess that's all we need, right? We don't need other human beings to help us with this. But that's actually not where the Bible goes. That's not where the New Testament takes us. This doesn't negate God's intention for human leaders to be leading in the church or in the government or any other institution, right? Every institution needs leaders, the church, the home, the government. We all need leaders. But but what this does do, it doesn't negate that, but it completely turns the script around. It completely turns everything on its head. It means that the human leaders that are placed in... In this context of what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the church, okay? I'm going to be talking about the the church context because you're in church. But what this means, it, it means this broadly for everyone. We have to reorient ourselves around Jesus and not around ourselves. That's where everything goes wrong, you guys. That's the problem. The problem is people start to think, oh, this is about me. And it stops being about Jesus. And that's when the train wreck starts to happen. That's when the derailment goes. When we start thinking, hey, this is my church, not Jesus' church. That's where it happens. And it's subtle. It happens slowly. It's sort of like the, 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 the frog that's being boiled in water and it doesn't jump out because the temperature gradually increases. And so it just kind of gets used to the temperature slow and then it boils to death, right? That's what happens. Like I, I look at, uh, I, I'm not going to name names, but man, there, there are some massive mega churches in Chicago. The two biggest churches in Chicago, both within the last two years had their high profile pastors crash and burn. And, and the churches are just devastated now because of it. And here's the thing. It's, and you kind of look back and I kind of look back and I go, how did nobody see this coming? Like, there, weren't there warning signs? And th- the answer is yes, there were, but everybody's in this boiling pot of water and the elders and leaders and other humans that are supposed to be around these guys that are in charge or whatever or the front man, that, that, they just start to go, they get caught up in all of the excitement too and so they don't, they don't say anything or, or care or don't see it because it's all so exciting and everything's so great and oh, look at how wonderful it is. And that's when everything starts to go wrong. There has to be a reorientation of the heart in the leaders of the local church, in the leaders of the home, in the leaders of everything that, that this is not our thing, it's Jesus' thing. We need to have a heart that is oriented around the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as a self sacrificing Savior, not a self-serving Savior. How many times did Jesus say, I lay my life down in this passage, in this short passage? Probably five or six, right? I didn't count them. I don't know. There's a, but there's a bunch of them. He says it over and over again. I lay myself down. 
Why? Because he's a self-sacrificing savior, not a self-serving one. And the, and the church needs leaders like that. And I'm, I'm the pastor here, you guys. I'm one of them. I'm one of the elders. I'm not the only guy who makes decisions. I know some of you think that I am, but I'm not. Um, but, but listen, there, there are other dudes around me that are godly and smarter than me and call me out on my junk, and that's good. We need that. Everybody needs that in their life. But this is the deal. If, if, if the heart of the leaders gets bad, then the whole thing goes bad. And we've all seen it. We've all experienced it to some degree or another. It's not, it's not good. And so there's a, there's a passage, this passage, Ezekiel 34, and uh, the, the next one we're going to go to are passages I bring our elders to very often probably several times a year at least. Maybe we should do it every month just to be safe, but you know, you got to keep and you got to keep this in view. This isn't our church. This is Jesus's church. Otherwise it all goes wrong. So, let me take you to one more place, Acts chapter 20. This is another place. This is basically you're just kind of listening into a devotion I've done with the with the elders many times, but it's um I think it's worth everybody hearing this. Because even if you're not in a position of leadership, you're still a part of the church and you need, to, you need to know what to look for. You need to know the warning signs. You need to see what the standard of Scripture is so that you can see when it's going wrong and get out. So there you go. You guys might not come back next week, but I'm showing you what you need to see. You need to see it. So here, here you go. Acts chapter 20, we'll start in verse 28. Context, Paul is speaking to the elders in Ephesus, the, the, the leaders of the church in Ephesus. He spent three years with them. He's now leaving on a boat or getting onto a boat to, to sail away, and he's not going to come back. He tells them, not, I'm not coming back. I'm going to die before you guys see me again. And so he has these parting words, and these words are so significant. Look at what he says. Verse 28. You can read the whole chapter. It's worth a read, but... We'll, we'll take a look at 28 through 32. It says, pay careful attention to what? Yourselves. There you go. He's speaking to the, to the elders, the leaders, the overseers of the church. And he says, take care, pay careful attention to yourselves. Why? Because the heart is a deceptive little jerk, isn't it? It can get so easily derailed. Pay a careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Again, you see this analogy, this, this sheep analogy is everywhere, right? To all the flock in which, so the, the elders need to be in the flock, not just above it, not just around it, in it, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit has given these guys that position. And here's why, here's what they're supposed to do. Here is the job description of an overseer, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's the, that's the job description of an elder right there, or an overseer. The, there's a lot of words that Paul uses in his letters to talk about church leadership. They all mean the same thing. 
overseer, elder, pastor, bishop. They all mean the same thing. I know that our terms have gotten confused and we use them different ways from different seasons, but the New Testament words for all these things are the same thing. It's the function of an overseer in the church, which is meant to be a team of men that lead the church biblically founded on Christ. That's what this is all, that's, that's, the, that's the thing, right? So he's telling this group of overseers to be careful, to pay attention to themselves first and foremost, and then to all the flock in which God has made you overseers. And this is your job description to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is Jesus's church. Jesus paid the price for us. No human leader can say that to you. Here's what he goes on to say, verse 29. I know that after my departure, right? So Paul was there with him for three years. He was kind of guarding the gate. He was guarding the gate to the, to the sheepfold here, right? And he says, after I leave, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So he says, hey, after I leave, you guys got to be prepared for this. There's going to be dangerous people that come in trying to persuade people away from Christ. Be Therefore, verse 31, be alert. Pay attention. This is what the... This is what elders are called to do. This is what overseers of the church are supposed to do. Care for the church, pay attention to the church, make sure that there's nothing happening where people are being led away from Jesus. That's the role, that's the job. He says, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So he, he brings them back to the word of God's grace through the gospel. And he says, I'm commending you that to that. That's the center. That's the bullseye of what all this is about. So listen, the role of the New Testament overseer or elder or pastor, or what, whatever term you want to use, whatever New Testament term you want to throw into that, it all means the same thing. They're all used synonymously. So pick your pick your choice. You know, you can call me Bishop Tom if you want. That'd be weird, but you can do it. It's, it's a biblical thing. It's thus the terms. So the role of that position is to help God's people stay with Jesus. That's the, that's the job. And when the church stops being about that and the leaders start being about themselves, that's where everything goes wrong. The greatest problems in the church stem from believing that this is our church and not Jesus's church. You guys, that's, that's the key. That's where every problem comes from. And we got to be careful. We got to guard ourselves. And listen, human leaders fail. They failed in the Old Testament. They will continue to fail now because we're still sinful. But when that happens, we have to go back to the center, which is that Jesus Christ will never fail us. Jesus Christ is perfect for us. He died in our place. He rose again that we might be made new. This is the the very essence of what we need to be about. Otherwise, we'll, we'll lose our way. We need to stay about Jesus. And and if we stay focused on Jesus, then when the when the inevitable things happen and the human leaders around us do fail because they're sinful humans, 
our whole world is not going to be rattled and shocked and ruined because we weren't building it on some foundation of a flimsy person, but we're building it on the firm foundation of the rock of ages. That's what we need to remember. And I, and I hope you guys see that this is, I, I take this seriously. I, I'm, I'm a sinner and I'm going to disappoint you. I probably already have if you've been here long enough. But I, I think this is so crucial, so crucial that we stay centered on Jesus. It has to be that way. If we lose that, we lose everything. And we need to be, we, we need to keep this thing around him and in him and for him, and through him, and all the rest, right? It's all about him. So, keep your eyes on Jesus. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for you. I can't say that, but he can, and it's true. So let's keep our eyes on him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are, um, we're just humbled by these things. At least I am. I, I'll speak to myself, and it's, um, it's a humbling truth to see the need for the good shepherd. That, there, that there's no human being in this world that's going to satisfy us or fulfill us perfectly or never fail us. But Jesus, you never will. I pray that our hearts would be drawn to that and that we continue to press in more and more to you. I pray that for our church, our leaders, I pray that for our people in this room. I pray that for all of us, that we would be centered on you. That we don't lose sight of the fact that you bought this church with your blood. You bought each of us by your sacrificial love. And we pray we would rest in that today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.